Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60. I am joined painfully, as always, by Tim. How are you? Beautifully. Back to front, baseball cap on. Not a good look for you. Tim, have you ever been the first person in the world to do anything? (laughs) Oh, that's an interesting question. One that I'd need to reflect pretty deeply on, but it's quite possible. I think it suffice to say you've never been the first person to do anything meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, if it was a first, I probably wouldn't be telling anyone about it. In contrast to our guest this week, who is the first person to have done a bunch of things? Monica Georgieva grew up in Bulgaria, went to school in Scotland, then came to Australia, and was one of the first people uh, in the one of the first females in the Australian Army into an arms corps. Was definitely the first female to try commando selection and SAS selection, which she mm-hmm. did twice, and was the first female officer in the Royal Australian Infantry Corps. Pretty amazing history, and yet. A very humble, down-to-earth person. And didn't do it to be the first, Ben. Yeah, and we're going to talk with Mon about that succession of firsts, but also about her her attitude, which was not so much about pioneering, um, you know, to to be first, but about going always a little little further. further. And when you don't have the physical capacity of, you know, I guess an 85-kilo male on those um, selection courses... What do you substitute in? A lot of ticker. And it's it's very interesting. We will talk with Mon about um, the, the ticker factor, the heart factor, but also about how you can pursue a goal that has never been done before. Let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Tim. G'day, Ben. G'day, Tim. And we're joined by Monica. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, Mon, we obviously worked together a couple of years ago. And from that period, I knew a little bit about your background through an interesting discussion we had um, on our selection course, which (laughs) uh, certainly uh, provided a bit of a very interesting story. But it wasn't until just recently when our our paths crossed again through puppy preschool. um, And then I I sort of got cued on to to hearing a bit of your background through a podcast that a mutual friend of ours ran, uh, Kev Toonan, in his 98 gym podcast, which is a fantastic episode if you want to check that out. But (laughs) I really got to, to learn a bit more about your fascinating story. And It'd be awesome if you could tell our listeners how you got to where you are today. Yeah, no worries. Um, So born in Bulgaria, and for all those who don't know where Bulgaria is, I don't blame you, but um, (laughs) Eastern Europe, sort of between all the other dodgy places like Serbia and Turkey and um, Greece, um, so the Balkan Peninsula. I'm born there, uh, grew up there um, until I got sent to boarding school in Scotland Mm -hmm. in nice and warm Edinburgh where I spent my formative years and then moved to Australia when I was 18. Uh, my family stayed behind, so they remained in Bulgaria. Um, 
went to university at ANU and then kind of felt like something was missing and I wasn't really finding anything uh, in civilian life at the time that I really felt passionate about. And I thought about the military uh, when I was in the UK, actually, but kind of got discouraged after an interview with a burly uh, Scotsman who said, what does a little girl like you want to do in the army? And I was like, well, I'm not doing this, so whatever. Yeah, um, yeah and then joined the Australian army um, shortly after that. Awesome. Um, which was awesome. And we're certainly really interested to talk about your time in uniform, mm. but maybe a bit more on your, your upbringing. So Bulgarian, um, even before Scotland, you, you had some pretty interesting uh, times. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, born in the in the 80s, the mid-80s, and then pretty much grew up in the 90s in Bulgaria. In the 90s, I feel, was a lot like um, America in the 20s with regards to, you know, organised crime and, um, yeah, a lot of, like, gangs, I guess. Um, so it was fairly... Um, violent place mm. in a lot of ways, even though we weren't a state at war by mm. any stretch of the imagination. And I, I did have an interesting upbringing. My parents were fairly um, fluid with, you know, how late I went to bed. Like, for example, <laughs> they owned a nightclub for a couple of years and didn't get me a babysitter for whatever reason. And I was primary school age, so didn't want to stay at home on my own, which mm. I think it's completely understandable. And so I used to hang out at the bar there and... Um, random people would bring me things like coloring books and um i had a, sk a skateboard this guy that i got i afterwards found out used to steal cars and i don't know how my dad knew him but he bought me like a skateboard one day and i used to skate around the dance floor before people came in and <laughs> i'll never forget one one day the police came in and you know everyone had a knife or some sort of thing on them back then and you could actually see like people throwing knives on the dance floor and they're just like spreading everywhere so that it would get searched and not get caught um yeah, so I definitely had a couple of couple of weird things happen. We actually went to a nightclub. Um, I think I must have been eight. I can't remember. Is that when you started clubbing, Tim? Yeah, <laughs> eight and a half. <laughs> <laughs> I was a late starter. <laughs> you bit baby faced. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't allowed to drink. I just want to say that. Like my pa my parents were good parents. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to very drink. Very glad you clarified um, that. Yep. But um, this uh, I guess like a local local gang. Masters, a security insurance company, had a uh, argument with a with the guys from the capital, and they just started shooting each other um, in this nightclub. And it was just when lasers and mirrors had become really popular, so everything just got completely destroyed. Um, and I just remember this like huge dude holding me really tightly, and I didn't know why at the time because I didn't understand like ricochets and things. And I could barely breathe, and then. This um, gentleman, I guess, from uh, the local gang was sitting down and my mum turned around and said to him, what are you doing and why aren't you helping your friends? And he said, I've been shot in the leg. <laughs> and I looked at his leg and it was just like a tiny little red dot thing. And I thought, well, that doesn't look that bad, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was a fairly interesting childhood in that so regard. First combat experience before you're 10. Yeah, although I felt like I was just a spectator more so than a participant. Oh, okay, so in addition to not drinking, your yeah, parents yeah. didn't allow you to participate yeah, in gunfights. Yeah. That's good. That's it's excellent response. Good parenting. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, though, did this, you know, what what was your, your sort of uh, frame of reference? Did it strike you as unusual that you this had just happened or was that kind of what was going on in, in Bulgaria at the time? I don't, I don't know if it was 
you know, happening to, to like the majority of people, I seriously doubt that was the case. But as far as my parents were concerned, we just had this really open kind of relationship where I, even as a small child, I never really got safeguarded from the realities of life. Mm. So they were very honest about a whole bunch of stuff, you know, and so I was exposed to a lot of conversations, which probably kids my age wouldn't have been. And I definitely didn't feel traumatized by the event. I mean, yeah, I was like, well, you know, that's just how it is. And I didn't, I, they didn't make a big deal out of it. And yeah. so it wasn't a big deal in my mind. And it wasn't until I mentioned to someone in Australia, actually, they're like, wow, like that's, you know, do you have like PTSD? I'm like, nope, like, I don't, don't think so. I feel pretty good. <laughs> I don't have dreams about it or anything. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It's really interesting. We, we talk a lot about sort of complexiness and messiness and shades of grey. And I think I've mentioned before, one of the I guess heuristics I've developed as I've gotten older is that I've got really black and white opinions about something, then I don't know enough about it. And it's easy to look at something like that and think, well, you know, these are gang, these are gangsters and, you know, they must be bad people. But of course, they're human beings. They, they're various different drivers to, to that kind of behaviour. But um, yeah, ultimately, I mean, you know, you're sort of growing up around them. You knew them as people. Yeah. It, it, you know, you're a product of your environment um, and Tough. I mean, life was tough in Bulgaria at, at that time. And, you know, people just did whatever they could to make money. And then some people wanted to make, you know, more money than others. But, um, yeah, some of those guys weren't bad, bad people um, as far as I was, I was concerned for, for what I knew them when I was just a child. Um, yeah, I think it's definitely not black and white. And so from that environment into a Scottish boarding school? Yeah. <laughs> were, were there many sort of Eastern European folk there? What was the kind of demographic in your school? I think there were actually only about four or five other Bulgarian, sort mm -hmm. of Russian. Um, you know, they were mainly British. Yep. Um, but there was definitely like other European nations like German and Spanish and a couple of people from Asia, uh, but predominantly British. And um, generally sort of well-to-do? Was it a, yes. a pro Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, Definitely a very well-to-do um, school, very posh, some may say. Yeah. So it was Tony Blair's um, old school. Um, yeah, okay. But, yes, yeah, so it was very different from yeah. what I was used to in Bulgaria. Not much clubbing or uh, gun no. fight experience. Well, I did go clubbing. Um, that's a different story. <laughs> but, yeah, no, there wasn't any gun experiences yeah. there. <laughs> and was that a culture shock? I mean, was, was that kind of weird going into? It was. I would actually like to think of myself as an um, extroverted introvert. So I don't, I like being around people and I like, you know, interacting and, but it makes me really tired afterwards. So I like to, the way I recharge is being on my own. Yeah. Um, and I was quite shy as a child actually. So I went to the UK and I spoke perfect English. I'd been to um, private schools in Bulgaria, mainly in English, but I didn't really, you know, I was too shy to speak to people. So, you know, I kind of felt like they were like, oh, she doesn't speak very well. And so... It actually took me a little while to make friends and get adjusted to the culture. It was definitely very hard. And also, you know, at 13, I would I thought I was all grown up and being able to just be an adult on my own. But the reality was that I'd never been away from home. So, it was yeah, it was pretty tough, actually. But then I ended up loving it. It was the best five years. Um, and I think it was the best thing my parents could have done for me because then it gave me all this opportunity to... Um, moved to Australia, go to university, have this great life. Whereas if I stayed in Bulgaria, that wouldn't have had any of that. Yeah. Was it a foundation for independence, Mon? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I can actually remember the exact moment. So I had a really tough um, weekend, one weekend. So after, shortly after I arrived at the school, 
and my uh, headmistress, uh, so she looked after all the boarding um, school kids, she actually uh, wrote a letter to my parents and said, you know, Monica's a great student and, you know, with, she's very bright and all that sort of stuff, but we think that, you know, she's struggling uh, emotionally to, you know, deal with this and maybe take her home and then bring her back when she's a little bit older. And um, my mum rang me and she said, all right, you have two choices. She said, first choice is you, we take you back home and then you'll never go back. Like, that's it. You'll live in Bulgaria, you'll do whatever. She said, oh, you're going to stop crying and you're just going to get on with it. And people think that's cruel. And I think my mum, since then, is she's felt really bad about it. But that is the best thing she could have done because I just went, okay, that's just fine. I'll stop crying and I'll just get on with it. And as a result, I think our relationship suffered because the cost of that independence was the fact that I had to let let them go in a lot of ways. But, um, yeah. That's definitely the moment that is sort of it's reminiscent of a story that Alyssa Azar told Ben yeah. of her first boxing fight yeah. where she was tearing up against mm. someone who was a superior opponent, at least in the initial rounds of that particular bout. And she came to her corner and her father, Glenn, said, you can cry or fight, but not both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a good way of looking at life. And I mean, we will talk more, I hope, in this uh, conversation about resilience, but I do wonder, and your beautiful story before about people saying, oh, you must have PTSD Mm. if you've seen someone use a weapon in a nightclub. (laughs) I reckon that is probably legitimate. But um, this idea that uh, maybe as a society we are quick to go to victimhood and quick to sort of, you know, your your 13-year-old daughter's having dramas in school and we're maybe far more reluctant to use tough love as we might have been. Um, And I wonder societally Mm. if that's having a negative impact. And easier to just put a label on it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, which can become a self-fulfilling prophecy Mm. in in some cases. So let's come back to Canberra. We're at the Australian National University. Yep. What next? Um, Yeah, so finished ANU and then... Um, you're, not, really... you're not going to gloss over the, oh, yes. the Mooseheads chapter that you oh, just God. told me about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For anyone who's ever been to Canberra, there is an institution <laughs> called Mooseheads. Hi, all those Mooseheads fans out there. Yep. That uh, was... Which includes think, every single Army officer that has ever served. Well, Army, the, Navy and Air Force, there you yeah. go. of course, yep. in the Australian Defence Force Academy. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think everyone's got a moosehead story. Well, I, I used to work there. You missed out on that team. <laughs> 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 uh, you have many moosehead yes, stories. Yes, I have many stories. You are part of the problem, not yes, the solution. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, my parents, I was an international student and the education was quite expensive and my parents paid for that. Um, and I, so I supported myself in all other ways. And so I worked two jobs and went to union. One was waitressing by day and then Mooseheads bartender by night. Um, and I've been given a lot of shit subsequently about this, but it was actually a great place to work at and probably not the story you were hoping for, but it Mooseheads actually teaches you um, hard work and efficiency and teamwork because uh, like most nightclubs, they want to have the least amount of staff for the most amount of profit. And as you know, that place used to get absolutely packed out. And so, you know, I would work 12-hour shifts and you would only get maybe like two 15-minute breaks, which is just how it was in hospitality. And, it was, and you know, it was very, very – I mean, it could be very full-on. And, like, I really enjoyed that fast-paced sort of environment. Um, was I the nicest person to customers? No. Did I get many tips? Probably not. But, um, um, you know, I was, a, I was a good worker and it was actually quite fun. And then I had a lot of dirt on people that were already at RNC <laughs> that I could use against them. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's a question. Did 
Mooseheads give you any life lessons that you took away and applied later in your military career? I mean, you said you realised the value of efficiency. Yeah. You had and to be looking effective for work. as well. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one thing. I think I think most people that have done bar work would attest to that is that there's always something you can do and it's always that looking for work. And I don't know if that's, you know, just part of your personality that gets kind of uh, comes to the surface when you work in that, those sort of environments, but you could just stand there and try and look pretty or whatever. But there's always, you know, things to wipe down and fridges to restock and customers mm-hmm. to serve. And it was that multitasking and, and looking for work. And I actually remember it was an RMC graduating class that had come in and they were pretty wasted. <laughs> Uh, as always. And this one guy, I, I just, so I'd already done my OSB and I was about to start in a couple of weeks. Break uh, that acronym down, OSB. Sorry, Officer Selection Board for the Royal Military College. Uh, and I was about to start my training a few weeks, in a few weeks. And um, he started chatting to me and I said that to him and he goes, well, I think you would do pretty well, um, judging from, from what I've seen. I was like, oh, thanks. That's quite nice of you. But yeah. Let me flip that question on you, Tim. Did you get any life lessons from the many hours you spent at Mooseheads. <laughs> Plenty, but none that I can actually remember. <laughs> Wasted effort. Okay, so you do your selection board. You're obviously successful and hit the College of Knowledge, RMC, yeah. Duntroon. Yeah. Pretty good 18 months. Yeah. Um, although having said that, I really enjoyed the field. I hated being back um, at the college and doing all the other stuff. And there was a time in my first six months where I thought about um, actually going the soldier stream. And it was a uh, an SAS uh, instructor, uh, or a, a beret SIG um, instructor who who was a mentor of mine, and I had a chat to him, and he convinced me otherwise, which I'm grateful for. Not that you know I I wouldn't have enjoyed being a soldier, but I think definitely was the right step to stay. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was a really really good really good eighteen months. Um, and when you went through the college, um, there were limitations on employment roles for females. Yeah, there were, and I think. There was a huge anti-climax when I got out um, of the college and into my first role because what I really enjoyed about RMC was the infantry stuff. So I loved the field. I loved all of that infantry-centric, um, the, the infantry-centric things we do, we did. And then I got told that I couldn't, that I couldn't even try out for that. So subsequently went into a different stream, which I like didn't enjoy at all, which was artillery. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the way I ended up in that was they were like, oh, you know, you can be a forward observer and pretty much like the infantry, you know, just the same stuff really. And, you know, you don't really know what you don't know. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll go artillery and um, ended up in Brisbane at the um, at a UAV, uh, unmanned aerial vehicle uh, unit, very far removed from uh, the infantry. And, um, yeah, so it was a bit of a letdown, to be honest. Mm. The bait and switch. Yeah, yeah. You can just be out there right on the front line, same as the infantry, but bigger guns. <laughs> this is much the, bigger guns. The classic play of the military recruiter <laughs> well, for centuries. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Artillery Corps, which even then, I mean, that hadn't been open to females for that long when you went through, is that No, correct? so we were technically, yeah, we were some of the first to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't stay there for very long. I shortly after that realised the, the game play and <laughs> said no um, I wanted to move to Townsville and as a result transferred to logistics and mm-hmm. it was pretty much hey I'll do whatever I'm pretty sure I'm gonna hate all of it and I just want to go to Townsville ended up in um, yeah in logistics and moving up to Townsville for a, for a couple of years um, and until one day I was browsing uh, on the computer and found an, um, an ad about an accelerated infantry course being run by the special operations um, training school 
and didn't actually know what it was. I didn't realize it was a, a prequel to mm. commando selection. Mm. And I had a, a mate who was an instructor of mine at RMC who was a two commando guy. And so I, I messaged him and said, hey, what, what is this? This looks really cool. Like I'd love to, to, do, to do that. And he was like, oh, yeah, you'd be, you'd be great for it. And then before I knew it, he'd called the OC and then I had to speak to the officer commanding of, of selection wing about this. And I was like, oh, my God, what's um, happening? And then, yeah, I ended up going on the course. And it's probably one of the best courses I've done um, in regular army. It was just so cool um, to get on, yeah, to mm. command the selection. Cool metaphor for life, though. Sometimes you do need someone to give you a nudge yeah. or even a push. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll be forever grateful <laughs> for that. Um, yeah, and it opened some doors, even though I was unsuccessful in that um, commando course. So let, let's talk about some of these selection courses. You have done more selection courses than Tim and I combined, and we're really interested in a couple of aspects of that. So you, you did the two commando selection. Yep. First female yep. on that. Yep. And then certainly first female on the SAS selection, which you, you attempted two times. Yep. Talk us through that, that two commando selection Including your preparation, I'm, I'm interested in the physical side mm. and then maybe talk about some of the, the other aspects as well. Yeah. So the uh, the accelerated infantry training uh, course pre- prepared me really well physically. So that that's what it was designed to do, I guess. Um, and at the end of the course, you had to pass the, some of the milestones, like the run and the pack march. And I actually passed both of those. So I was stoked. And, and then there was like a couple of months uh, gap between that and the entry test, which is, again, the run. Etc. And I think I was so paranoid, and that's where that inexperience in training comes. I was so paranoid that my run times were going to get slower that I just overtrained, mm-hmm. and I just ran and ran, and then I was getting slower and slower, and I was like, "Oh, what is happening?" And then I run just more, sort of, yeah, yeah, just run more, and um, so I just made it on the entry test, mm-hmm. and you know, the run was always like my nemesis. So, for for our listeners, the the run being the three point two, yeah, so three point two kilometer run, wearing webbing. Um, boots. boots and rifle, all up, um, well, eight kilos plus the rifle, which is about four. Yeah. And bearing in mind for, for everyone listening, that does not discriminate on gender, age, size. So the run and things like the pack marches, there is a set weight. Um, but then when you look at an individual, the power to weight thing comes into play and be rude to ask a lady no, her weight, <laughs> but we're starting to talk about significant percentages of your body weight. Um, yeah. which wouldn't be the same for an 85 kilo guy. No, I think I was actually around 56 when I did the two commanders. So mm-hmm. I was even lighter than when I did the SAS one, and I was about 58 for the first um, SAS course. And mm. there's that give and take of putting on more weight than the running actually becomes harder. Mm. Um, for you know my physique, I'm not designed to be that much heavier. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so pretty, pretty, pretty hard. And then I got on the course, and I was looking back on it, I think what, what undid me ultimately is I, I failed the run on the course and there was no retests. Um, so it was a very short <laughs> course for me. Um, but I was so nervous um, about it. You know, it was that performance anxiety, but just so amplified because I was fully cognizant of the fact that it hadn't been done before by women, that I was the only girl, that potentially some people didn't really want me there. Um, and it just played on my mind hugely. And like, I think... Because, you know, the run, the two runs, the entry test and the selection run were two weeks apart and I passed one with some, some time to spare and I'd failed by, I think, a minute and a half on the mm. day. So it was pretty, pretty big difference. So physic- I don't think physicality was the issue that day. It's a really funny thing for me and um, I, we will talk, I hope, more about um, sort of paradigm busting and all this sort of stuff. But 
there is certainly an element of precedent in all of these things. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people thought a human being couldn't run under four minutes for a mile. It was very recently that someone broke two hours for the marathon, which was also thought to be a physical impossibility. And I I see sort of echoes of that in, in a lot of these, that it is easy to just say, oh, a female can't pass the selection course. But of course, you know, it, it is doable. And, and it's interesting how much that, that mindset bit of, of being the first must play into it. I mean, what, what sort of, did you have those thoughts in the back of your head? Yeah, definitely. I, um, I was spoken about imposter syndrome. And I think I definitely had a little bit of that, even though I'd passed the entry test, I felt like I just wasn't um, you know, maybe didn't deserve to be there or I'd look at some of the other candidates and they were all, you know, men who were like 85 kilo, huge, huge muscly. Um, and then, you know, I just felt like, Phew, I don't know that I can actually do this. So I had a really interesting thing happen on, on the second selection um, at SSR where I, we did a navigation exercise and I'm very stubborn and I misaligned my compass and walked for 7K overnight to where I thought I was going, but really it was in a completely wrong direction. And one of the instructions we, we got was, you know, if you do get really, really lost, just call it in on the radio and we'll give you some guidance. And I thought, no, nah, like I'm going to, I'll find it by myself. And I ended up walking all night, didn't sleep all day till about 3 p.m. And I just wasn't feeling too good because obviously <laughs> lack of food, lack of sleep, a very heavy pack. Um, but I didn't think any of that. In my mind, I was like, maybe I'm not made for this. Like, my body doesn't feel, I don't feel that great. And, you know, I should feel great. Mm. And it wasn't until one of the instructors came on the quad bike and found me. And he was like, candidate, do you know where you are? I said, no, sir. He said, well, you are outside of the boundary. You've walked that far north. He <laughs> you're, said, in, you're in Geraldton. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you're in the wrong spot. He said, you've walked more than any other candidate today and you've not hit a checkpoint. So it's not going to count. And, um, and then he said, have you slept? And I said, no. So I don't feel I don't feel that great. He goes, well, no shit, you don't feel that great. And then, you know, I'm never going to forget that because it just put it in perspective, like how critical we can sometimes be of ourselves and our own performance, and then that actually limits our ability to perform. It's yeah. And, and you start getting that negative self talk, and yeah. we've spoken a lot about uh, this. People sometimes have ideas about leadership and that, that you should always have the right answers and know what to do and yep. that your plan should go out <laughs> flawlessly. And then, of course, when it doesn't, because it won't, because life is messy, we start thinking, oh, I'm not cut out for this. Yeah. If, if I was a good leader, I wouldn't be having these doubts or things would be working. And of course, that's not the case. And it's funny how quickly that can play. And you talk about the contrast between commandos and SAS and maybe for our listeners, they're part of the same special forces family. Yep. I, some people might not like my analogy, but I've used it in the past and it's probably a simple way to describe it. You know, commandos are a bit like the sledgehammer. SAS is a bit like the scalpel. That so is when... not your analogy. I <laughs> cannot let you claim that. Whose is that? <laughs> it's, I've heard it. I Maybe rolled two. that one out in 2000. You, in, you invented that? Might have. <laughs> okay. Well, if it's not <laughs> mine, it's someone It's pretty good. It's a good analogy. It's a good analogy. But in the SAS, that independence is really important. You know, small groups that need to think and operate very independently. And in an age of mutual admiration where we're constantly seeking reassurance, those individual activities on selection really challenge pound-for-pound individuals because the self-doubt's there and you can't look for reassurance from anyone else. You've got to find it deep within yourself. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, we, we saw lots of people get undone in some of the individual stuff. You know, 
they maybe struggled in an activity and then that doubt was in their mind and when they were alone they couldn't stop thinking about it and you know people that were definitely more physically able than me pulled off the course before mm. I did which was um, quite shocking really yeah. it's it's fascinating i mean i ben and i have instructed on multiple selection courses and often the best performing candidate mm. with a little sliver of self doubt will withdraw themselves and say I'm not doing any good, so I want to come off the course. And and often it's those rock stars that have come from whatever background and they are just so used to getting that pat on the back and getting that positive reinforcement that when they don't get it, even though they're killing it, and you see it, it's it's miles away. Someone's, you know, destroying every activity and you're thinking this person's right up there, but because we're not saying, yay, here's a trophy or whatever it is, um, yeah, it, it eats away and they pull themselves off the course. Oh, I'm not doing very well. I've, I've you know, going to quit. Through the years, I think I've lost count of how many people have asked for advice because they're going to attempt SAS selection. And after struggling through the, I don't know, many, 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 many things you could tell them to do, I discovered, and I think I did invent this one, Ben, <laughs> the thing that really resonated, which was all they want you to do is never give up. And I think that's probably very true, not just on mm. a commando selection or an SAS selection, but in life in general, mm. that tenacity. 100%. And I think that plays into this concept of ambiguity tolerance as well, that you know, it is easy when you're not getting reinforcement and the, the environment's changing or it's ambiguous itself to have that self-doubt creep in. And you can so quickly talk yourself out of out of anything. And that, that old saying that, you know, 100% of the, the people who withdraw from that course don't get selected. <laughs> I think I've butchered the saying. But but what it's saying is you've, you've got to... Did you make that one up? <laughs> yeah, I'm not as eloquent as you. You've got to be there at the end, even if you, you, you think you're doing poorly. You, the one way you can guarantee you won't be selected is by pulling off. And without hijacking this episode, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not everyone that gets to the end of that selection course gets selected. Mm. So it's not a survival course. You yeah. can't just underperform but yeah. make it until the end. Mm. One of the things that fascinates me, Mon, is there's a, there's a test on selection that's known and knowable. It's a 20-kilometre march. And you carry, correct me if I'm wrong here, a 20-kilo pack? 28-plus rifle. Well, I might so have, I might have thinned mine right. out a bit. 20, 20 kilo pack and <laughs> yeah, 8 kilo webbing and okay, the rifle. So, so it's 32, 32 all and, up, I reckon. And you went on selection at 58. Mm. How, how do you, are you doing the math? Tim? I am We're trying to work out what the equivalent for an 85 kilogram. I don't think we'll ever know. <laughs> but it, I mean, clearly over half your body weight. Mm. So, you know, we're talking about that's. 40 something <laughs> or other. <laughs> can, we, can we edit the maths in later? Again, it's, if we're still seeking a mathematician that might be able to sit with Yonku and <laughs> give us some advice and, yeah, on the Hold up numbers in the window. Yeah. Yeah. Um, significant proportion of your body weight. Sorry, carry on. Tim. How do you get through that? Just the physical nature. We've talked a little bit about mental, and I think we yeah. will circle back mm. to that. And there's definitely a relationship between two of those things. You've got to be not just physically fit, but physically tough, but also mentally tough. But how do you get through a baseline test carrying over half your body weight, 20 kilo, uh, ki or twenty kilometers, kilometers um, and you've got to meet a time imperative? Pack marching is one of those things where it's never fun, I've found. <laughs> And I don't think it's fun for anyone, despite of how much they weigh. 
Um, it's funny you say that because the 20 clicker wasn't actually one of the harder things I've done on selection. So I felt like with I've done a lot I did a lot of training, a lot of preparation and I you know I was fully cognizant of the fact that being smaller and female with a different build, you know, smaller lungs, smaller muscle mass, all those things meant that I'd probably have to put in more effort than the guys and that I was fine with that. And so that 32 kilo all up, it wasn't it was actually it became fine for me. So it became like, yep, I can do this. Where where I really came undone is at later stages on selection and even in, in that first week, but where I had to carry close to body weight. And I just, it, yeah, it was pretty tough on the body to do and that. We, I mentioned Kev's podcast earlier. And certainly, I mean, Kev Turnan did a lot of work in that space, now doing amazing things at 98 Gym, absolute strength and conditioning guru. But you did a lot of work with Kev on the, the physical side in the lead up to, yeah, to those I mean, courses. Yeah, Kev was amazing. He, um, I never forget, like I failed one of the 3.2s and I was doing a retest and, you know, he would come in, in at work at like 5.30 in the morning so we could start at 6 and he was always there in my corner supporting me. He was a great guy, very knowledgeable, did a lot of weight training with him, which mm. I love anyway. And you really need to because you just, uh, if for a female, you have less muscle mass and you've got to build that to make sure that you can sort of sustain carrying those heavier loads. But, and as Kev loves to say, mass moves mass. So at the end, there's there's a limit to what what you can move when yeah. you weigh 58 kilos. Yeah. Okay. So clearly a really important physical component. And I do encourage our listeners to, to go to the 98 podcast um, to, to hear a little more about that from, from an absolute expert. But ultimately, the physical vector is, is kind of the tool that we're using to or the course is using to test for a, for a lot of other things, including just that ability to keep going uh, in in situations of doubt or uncertainty. Mm. Yeah. But in many ways, they're looking for these motivators, and um, you know, clearly there's some extrinsic motivation. It's a high status unit. You get a little more money. You get a cool hat, <laughs> uh, Sandy Beret. Yep. Um, Not very get, practical, but cool. <laughs> no, but, but cool. Uh, you get to live on the beach. All these mm. kind of things, but. That can only get you so far. What what did you draw on for motivation in the the dark spots in that course? Um, so I really enjoy pain, and that's not in like a weird sort of creepy way. But <laughs> I think I have this weird relationship with it, um, and I love pushing myself to to the physical limit. And I'll give you a short vignette. But I was actually it was Kev. So the second time I came off selection, I was. Um, you know, not feeling that great. So I, I withdrew myself. And by the time they got to pick me up and take me back to the main um, command post, so to speak, I was completely out of it. Like I couldn't speak. And I just remember almost like drooling on myself as I was trying to get out of the car. And then a, a guy who I knew from the unit was like, oh, Mona, you all right? And I was just like, oh, I couldn't speak. Um, and then got, got picked up by some medics and then they tried to um, bag me and couldn't get any veins and eventually found one in my hand. And I was just stared at my hands like um so i was pretty out of it mm. and then the first person i called was kev actually because i just felt so bad for this you know it's kind of letting him down and not getting to the end after all the work he put in with me i said you know what i'm like it's pretty i just felt there was a moment there in the, especially in the sand dunes but in the car where everything just got so far away it was like i was looking at myself from like a different place mm. and it was kind of scary, but I liked it. I'm like, I kind of liked it, Kevin. He said, you know, you know, that's how people feel before they die, right? Like, that's not cool. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, you're going to, and I feel like since I've left, kind of try to recreate that with some of the other stuff I do. So now I'm really into mountaineering and 
want to get into like long distance running, but I need, for some reason, I'm not sure why, I need that feeling um, from every now and then. <laughs> do, do you think that you associate that feeling as a, as a proxy for being in a place where you're growing? You yeah. Def- yeah, definitely. I mean, because life just becomes boring if everything is easy and, um, you know, I feel quite lucky that I haven't had like a super, um, I hate to say this, but super privileged life. Mm. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I feel lucky because I know people that, that have had those lives and they've actually tried to, to do something, to experience something else because it does make you grow. Um, and yeah. Your point, Tim, there's no happiness without struggle. And I also love, um, we've spoken before, Mon, you and I offline, but um, a lady called Tara Moore talks about this concept of fear and she references the the Hebrew interpretation, which has two different words for fear. And one is, uh, now forgive my pronunciation, but one is um, pahad, which is that no kidding, saber-toothed tiger, fight, flight, freeze, amygdala sort of fear. But the other is one that they call yira, um, which is more that apprehension when, and Tara Moore explains it beautifully, but she talks about when you are inhabiting a space that's bigger than you're used to. And for many, for me, I think when I fear that, or when I feel that kind of fear, it's almost a proxy for saying I'm in this growth space. You know, this is a positive apprehension. I'm not used to it. It is beyond my comfort zone, but I'm now starting to to recognize that as a trigger for being in that growth mindset sort of space that that kind of pushing your your comfort zone and maybe that's similar to you know when you're feeling pain yeah um you you're doing you, you're going a little further to coin a phrase mm-hmm. yeah and, and reflecting on the imposter syndrome piece and you mentioned arriving on selection and not feeling like you felt like you should be there mm-hmm. I, I also felt that i remember arriving day one on selection and there were these supreme athletes there were these people that their whole professional performance was highly regarded out there in the military. And by day three, most of the guys that could bench 150 were gone. And probably by day 10, the majority of people who whose identity was wound up in people saying that they were fantastic performers were gone. Yeah, on my, on my first course, um, you know, we did the 3.2 at the start and I think it was me and one other guy and we came dead last. We just made the cut. We're like, whew, like I was stoked. Like people would have been upset about it. I'm like, I made it. Like it's <laughs> happening. I'm actually going to get to experience this. It's awesome. Um, and then by day four, yeah, by day four, more than 40 candidates had already come off. And so all of these guys were fitter than me. I mean, obviously, at, le- at least at running. Um, and you got to wonder like what, what happened that made them um, pull off, and a lot of them pulled off during the 20 20 kilometer pack march, which is unknown mm-hmm. as well. So I think things just play on their mind, and then they, yeah, they just go. Did you eat your request to withdraw form like Ben did? No, I did I not. I probably should have, but I didn't. <laughs> I was hungry though. <laughs> okay, let's talk about busting paradigms, breaking glass ceilings. Your bio contains a whole bunch of firsts. You were one of the first females into an arms corps in the Australian Army. You were the first female on the commando selection course. You were the first female on the SAS selection course, let alone the first to attempt it twice. And you were Australia's first female infantry officer. Was that motivating you? Uh, 
No. <laughs> Okay. Defence Jobs are not a sponsor of our podcast, clearly. <laughs> if they are, we might have to wear this out. Honestly, honestly being, being first wasn't a thing that mm-hmm. I cared about. And I think it was just um, coincidence, yep. really. And it's just something I always wanted. So I joined the army and I wanted, so when I was a kid, I wanted to be, um, to work with the CIA. My parents said, you can't because you're not American. And I said, well, I'm going to be a hitman then. You know, and it's probably not what most little girls talk about. So obviously I was different. <laughs> you really did have a different job. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I wanted, you know, I wanted to be in the army and I, I just love that stuff. And Would so, that have been a hit person? I mean, was, was political correctness starting no, to creep into No, I was it? definitely no. a hit man. Okay, yeah. got it. I mean, man being woman or man. Yeah. <laughs> got it. Um, and so I just wanted to do the job. I felt like I've always said this and people might disagree, but I felt like I was an infantryman at heart before I joined the infantry. Like it's not like I changed when I suddenly got into the core. So I didn't care about being the first. It just so happened that that was the case. And if anything, sometimes I wish that I hadn't been because probably my life would have been a lot easier if hmm. someone else had done it before I did. Um, but I've definitely enjoyed my time, especially within the infantry corps, which is the best corps in the army, by the way. <laughs> so, so how did that start? You arrived in Townsville to be a rifle platoon commander day one? Yeah. Talk uh, us through that. So um, a bit of background. So I came out of SAS. I already had the two you know, failed selections um, behind my back, uh, so I was good. And then... Um, went and did my my uh, officer training as an infantry officer, and yeah, posted into Townsville into the first um, battalion, and um, my platoon sergeant, who is now one of my best mates, he actually said to me um, subsequently that he's super stressed out about having a female boss because he's like a really manly kind of dude and yeah, um, blokey guy, I guess you would call him, and I think there was a little bit of like apprehension, like, oh, what, what is this? How is this going to play out? And he used to, I'd walk into the office and he'd be changing and he'd freak out because, and for those who don't understand, we don't really have a lot of changing rooms. I guess people mm. sort of kind of like half dressed and getting undressed and running to places all the time. Um, and it was funny because about a week into it, after we kind of got to know each other, there'd be his crap like laid out <laughs> all around the office, like he's half naked all the time, you know, like putting stuff away. Anyway, so I think... I think the two selections, despite the fact that I didn't get to the end, gave me, it made me think like, hey, you can do this. You, you can actually do this job. I did quite well on my um, infantry training course. And also I had less doubt in my own mm. ability. So when I walked into one or hour, I felt like I didn't have anything to prove and that my actions would speak for it. I, I knew that people would still look at me because I don't look the you know, I'm not a big um, guy and I'm quite small that might be like, oh, is she going to be up to it? But then as soon as we get on with the task, we, we do the physical training and this year that I can actually um, do it and I'm quite good at it, then it would be fine. And it was. Um, and I've built some like lifelong friendships out of it. It's been really, really good. Mm. Mm. It's funny. We spoke just before we came on air about uh, this old sort of maxim, you, you can't be what you can't, what you can't see. Is that how it goes? You can't be what you can't see. And, you know, the importance of having pioneers doing this. And within Australia, the AFLW has just opened up that sport to a whole generation of of, um, young girls. Um, It's interesting. 
clearly, and you probably don't consider yourself this, but you are an inspiration for a lot of people. We've just come off a, a course working with a bunch of MBA students um, in a sort of bush environment, some leadership work out there. And a number of them came up to you afterwards, and certainly a number came to me and just said, Mon is incredible. You know, what she has done has given me inspiration that this can be achieved. I'm not limited by gender. Um, and yet it's super interesting to, to hear you say that that wasn't even a factor. I mean, you, you weren't doing it to be the first or to break down the, the sort of barriers on behalf of your gender or anything. You know, it was so humbling because for them to say that, and I felt kind of awkward about it because I never thought it was such a huge deal. Mm. Um, and I, I think a lot of people do need to have a role model or uh, someone who is like them, who they can then visualize themselves doing the same, the same thing. For me, for whatever reason, that wasn't the case. I mean, when I was little, for those who are too young to know Captain Planet was a TV show. Maybe too old. Okay, maybe too old. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a cartoon and this guy was like saving the world. It was all about climate change, so it would be pretty popular now. But um, so you had this team of, of um, guys and girls who all had like rings of power and the combined Captain Planet would come along. Mm. And I always wanted to be the fire guy. So there was, you know, a couple of girls like, Phew, but I just wanted to be the fire guy. I don't know why. I just, he was the coolest to me. <laughs> so I think in my army career, especially, I've, I mean, I've had a lot of mentors and um, people I really looked up to, but I never thought that there needed to be a particular gender for that to be the case. Yeah. As a female infantry officer, Mon, did you have to lead in a different way? I don't think so. So I am, my, I think my personality was very suited to the infantry, like, um, I was saying to Ben before, like I felt at home there um, around around those, um, for the most part, men. But I actually had a friend who was an intelligence officer who did her regimental time at Wanaria and we were very, very different. She was super motherly and like girly and non, non-infantry, I guess you would call it. And her soldiers loved her because she cared about them. She was competent and she was true to herself. So she didn't try to be someone else. And I think at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. I just went in there and did what I do best and I was myself and then I cared about my soldiers and that's really all they want, yeah. And it, it is a balance, I guess, We this idea of, of having mentors and having, uh, I guess, a visible precedent that, that makes it possible um, and yet, you know, not necessarily that being the only thing that, that drives you and it's it's interesting when you talk about diversity that, a lot of times we get caught up in these ideas of surface level diversity, different coloured skin, different backgrounds, different gender. And what we're actually after is is sort of that deeper diversity. And, and you can actually get, as you said, you know, you felt very at home in an infantry environment. You know, you're, you're probably more infantry than a lot of the, yeah. the guys in, in that respect. So it's just interesting to, to see that the, the gender thing almost came along for the right. And you mentioned, you know, caring for your soldiers and that's all that really mattered. How does that translate into the corporate world? You know, in the military, we separate command, leadership and management. In the corporate world, there's a lot of management. There's probably not so much command, if any. And the real question that I've got is how much leadership is truly out there in the corporate world? Now you've crossed over. What's your perspective on that? I mean, yeah, I've just crossed over, so probably limited in some regards, but I think that, you know, leadership in army is so ingrained in all officers. You go into RMC and we talk about leadership and you get trained for 18 months. It's all about leading and um, how to do it and how to give orders. And I feel like in corporate world, there's not as much emphasis on it. So in some regards, people might not be as well prepared 
to, when they come into those positions from a technical background to then be able to to lead um, effectively in a lot of ways. But when I say caring about your soldiers, and I think that translates to any employee, is that when you have people who you're responsible for, who you have any power over in whatever environment that may be, there's a responsibility there that you will look after their interests as well, that you will do, um, help them develop, you know, will do what's best for them, not try to sort of throw them under the bus. And people can sense that. And as a leader, I think that is a very important part of your job. Um, so it definitely translates into corporate um, as well as the military. Advice for females out there on risk-taking, on, you know, chance, people maybe a little reserved about coming forward or putting their hand up or doing things that might expose them, what would your advice be? Do you know, I've always tried to live my life like this. When I'm old, I want to look back and think, I've really, like, I've really done everything I wanted to do. And you can't live your life in fear. And so I don't want to regret not taking a chance on something just because I thought I would fail. And I have failed at a whole bunch of stuff, you know. <laughs> including the 3.2 a couple of times. And that's totally, <laughs> totally okay. So if I had one thing to say is just go for it because life's short and what's the point in living a bland, boring life when you could live it, you know, lead an exciting life? Mm. There's a nice interplay between those people that you look at as success stories and those that suck less. <laughs> Most people that suck less have failed more. Yeah. Mm. So why not <laughs> yeah. fail more? In and, order to suck less. And the yeah. other thing about success stories, and this is something that I found refreshing and super interesting about the work we do now with really high-powered executive teams and just stunningly spectacular individuals doing great things. You see them from a distance and they are killing it. You know, they are all over it, not a shred of self-doubt, and they're, they're doing great things. And yet when you talk to them in a one-on-one -on -one or in a workshop or a, a, a sort of activity like that, they're all riddled with the same questions <laughs> that, that all of us have. And we spoke about imposter syndrome. There's a lot of that out there. We spoke about self-doubt and ambiguity and making it up as you go along. And all these swans that are gliding effortlessly across the lake are, are still paddling like buggery underneath. And it's, it's wonderful to have that normalised. And I, I think, you know, it is really important. I, I was a bit cynical about this, you can't be what you can't see type theory. I, you know, I would have thought, oh, well, just go out and do it. But when you look at it, you know, people thought you couldn't run under four minute miles. Someone did it, and now it's it's commonplace, and it really helps to to prime the pump of what's what's achievable. So I think it's it's awesome that we have got people breaking these paradigms still, and sort of even if that's not their intention, as it as it wasn't for you, it it does serve as a, a fantastic inspiration for a whole bunch of different people, not just in your case, females. I think a lot of the limits we have just once we impose on ourselves. Mm. And then the day we stop thinking of them as limits is the day we can then push past them. Um, yeah. What about leadership presence, Mon? How would you advise people to present themselves even if they were doing something completely different yep. in front of a group of people that maybe had doubts where the dividend is trust and confidence? Yep. What about leadership presence? Um, leadership presence or command presence, to me, if I could summarise it in a very um, in a phrase, is always owning the ground you stand on. Okay, regardless, just because you're standing on it, and so long as you you think I think of that when I stand in front of a, a group of people and I have to speak, and it helps me feel more confident in myself. Um, 
because it, you don't have to be six foot to have command presence. Like I said to some girls um, from the MBA program that asked me about that. But it's not about it's not about size. It's not about looks. It's about your confidence and your belief in yourself. Yeah. Is that your phrase? Did you come up with that, or are you doing a Tim <sighs> Curtis and claiming? Because it's brilliant. I know, and I'd love to claim it, but it's actually my partner's <laughs> phrase. Oh. His head is going to get bigger now. You don't admit to that because <laughs> no one ever fact checks. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> that is an awesome way yeah. of saying it. And we love Amy Cuddy's stuff about the importance of body language, not you know, in a physiological sense as well, having those power poses yeah. that actually lower your cortisol, jack up your testosterone, but also in terms of how it transmits your presence as a leader. Owning the ground you stand on. Yeah. Glad I thought of that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll hear that rebadged in future yeah. episodes, oh, yeah. I'm sure. I'm absolutely sure. Don't tell him it's awesome, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we won't tell the originator. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's probably a really neat way to leave the episode. Mon, thanks very much for being on the Unforgiving 60 podcast. Thanks for having me. Now to the debrief. We strive for continuous improvement and greatly appreciate your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living that life less ordinary, please tell us. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow and engage with us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.